It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Vent. This is Vent Weekly, a collaboration between Vice and the London Borough of Brent. Let's get a cracking. Brent is a place in London. You might not have heard of it, but it's our home. Even though we're all from one part of London, we believe that young people across the world have more in common today than ever before. And that's why we've teamed up with Vice to get our stories out to you. Hey, and welcome to Vent Weekly. I'm Amelia. And I'm Nuruddin. This is the first episode of Vent Weekly. Every week, we chat to a journalist or expert about something we care about. From politics, to fashion, to crime. Brent is changing. Some of the changes we've noticed are new flats going up, streets becoming pedestrianised, and also new shopping centres, such as Box Park. So for today's episode, we're going to be speaking about something personal to us, which is access to public space. I'd say the main public space I make use of are parks. I skateboard, so I obviously like public spaces where they allow skateboarders. I think it is really important to have access to public spaces. With the increase of like flats, not many people have like gardens anymore. You need to get away sometimes, it's good escape. It's nice to have somewhere you can just come, relax, chill all day without feeling like you're needing to spend money and feeling welcome in those spaces is really important just to, I don't know, have a sense of community. Today we're joined by vice journalist and gentrification expert Ruby Lott-Lavinia and seen and heard project ambassador Yusra Abdullatif to talk about access to public spaces for young people in the UK. Would you guys mind introducing yourselves? Yeah, sure. I'm Ruby Lott-Lavinia. As you said, I'm staff writer at Vice, which means I kind of write on everything, but I also specifically focus on a lot of social issues like housing and gentrification. Um, and I also write a lot about politics. Nice. So my name is Yusra. I'm a Brent Youth Ambassador um, and I participated in the Seen and Heard project, which was a group of young Brent residents which were attempting to redevelop a plot of land that was given to us uh, by Quintain. Um, and Quintain are a property development firm, um, which are currently helping sort of rebuild Wembley, specifically around the Wembley Stadium. Nice. So I just wanted to ask you both, actually, what your definition of a public space is. What does it mean? Like, why is it important? We could just start with Israel. Sure. I define a public space as just an area in which all people feel included, um, regardless of race, sex, whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, just where they can enjoy themselves. A place for inclusivity as opposed to like exclusive yeah. private areas. 100%. Cool. What about you, Ruby? Yeah, I mean, similar. It's usually like a state-owned bit of area, a bit of land. It could be a building, could be a swimming pool, sports ground, community centre. But I think 
profoundly it has to be super accessible. You know, it has to be somewhere that people feel not just like the state owns or like their council owns, but that they can go and they can use. Big parks and stuff, are they considered? Yeah, completely. So like, I mean, most parks in London, for example, are state owned. There might be periods of time where parts of them are privatized, like during festivals. And that would be kind of an example of what we're talking about. Um, of the kind of gradual loss of public space. How would you say public spaces are changing into private spaces? What's the shift they go through and what's the process? So basically, it all comes down to money at the end of the day. And council funding has been cut loads since 2010, which means that councils still have to fund, you know, schools, they still have to fund parks, they still have to fund uh, like social services. But now with, I think on average, 26% less budget since 2010. So what that means is they look at a lot of the stuff they own, which might be like a town hall, might be like the actual office space they're in, it might be a park, and they think, okay, well, we've got all these assets. How are we going to make some money off this thing as the government's now not giving us any money? Mm. So what they will do is sell those off or rent those spaces out. So in the case of Brent Council, uh, they'll sell off the town hall. In the case of constituencies that have big parks, they'll rent out the park to like music events, love box or whatever. Makes sense. And, and will make money off those things. That does make sense. And then it will use those funds, hopefully, to put back into public services. But yeah, I mean, this is an interesting change. So basically, up until 2016, there was legislation that said any money that was made from selling off assets by councils could only then be put into buying more assets. So you couldn't, like, sell off assets to pay for stuff. So then David Cameron basically changed that legislation. So now you can sell off assets to pay for, like, frontline services, um, which basically gave the government, like, a get-out clause. So it was like, well, we're not giving you any money, but now you've got legislation to sell off all those, like, lovely buildings you own and libraries and just use that money to, to pay for like, you know, short start centres or whatever. So when you think about parks that host festivals such as Wireless and Fringy Park, um, Love Bots, what's the issue like with them becoming privatised? I mean, they're still open free spaces for people to walk around. Why should we be worried about them being privatised? Well, partly it's because it starts off a trend where public spaces can be leased out to private companies. And also, if you think about like Lovebox and Wireless, I have been to both those festivals and do enjoy going to them. But it closes off a massive amount of the park to the people who want to use it every day. The grass and everything gets like massively run down. The noise pollution is really bad. I know that Victoria Park had like a massive issue with like their local residents with that. And I think that's why I moved. Um, And so it's not like, it's not totally inoffensive. Like I'm sure the idea of maybe just having like three or four days of a festival there and then it disappears seems like almost okay. But when we're talking about this space that is so valuable to people, just kind of disappearing for, for what is a private company making a lot of money off it? You know, maybe that doesn't sound so good. Mm. Yeah, and also when it comes to like private spaces, there's way more regulations and rules. So, you know, in a public space, you're allowed to protest. In private spaces, you're not allowed to do that. And it's why like Canary Wharf, for example, you can't protest there because it's all privately owned land. And, you know, it's it's Mm. such a restriction to kind of people's liberties and people's like political freedoms. And so that's a real issue when it comes to privatizing space. So um, usually you're the project ambassador of Seen and Heard. So do you want to just talk about like how that project came about? Well, it came about in our discussions of what we found important as the wider Brent youth ambassadors. Um, and one thing that came up was how, especially within Wembley, the gentrification process mm-hmm. was excluding a lot of us. And we felt that we needed a space in which we felt comfortable. So in terms of your project, what's the process been like 
Um, so you guys were even working with like mini models and stuff like that, right? So tell us about that. We were like given these really cool um, architectural gadgets, like these like mini models. And then we like built our, so without any restraints, no financial restraints, no social restraints, nothing. What would be your ideal public space? And we Amazing. were put in, um, yeah. And then we were put in into different groups and we were given like glue sticks and papers and whatnot. And we just like went about and building them. And then like following those sessions, we just took parts of those models that we initially made and then molded it into the restraints that we actually do have. So um, how big the plot of land is, obviously the financial restraints, and then just molded something realistic and achievable, but also had all the elements that we were trying to achieve. So inclusivity, something that we feel like belongs to us. Mm -hmm everyone in the room was from Brent and so they had some sort of personal affiliation. In the sessions, we sort of mapped out um, what areas within London we um, spend most of our time and it was like predominantly concentrated within Brent. And the fact that we felt that we couldn't do that anymore just because there weren't any places available was really quite upsetting. And the fact that when we had the meeting with Quintain, it was like they weren't really aware of the fact that, you know, a lot of the culture was being wiped away because of these big property developers. What's the difference, would you say, between the youth designing public spaces rather than older people that aren't the youth who aren't going to spend their times in those public spaces. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's really good that, that Brent Council have the Seen and Heard project to get young people involved. I think ultimately, like, property development companies will have profit margins at heart. And so I think it's really good that Brent have this project, but what's even more crucial is seeing what comes out of it. You know, we're too early at this point to see what they actually build, whether they've listened. And so it's really a question of how much the council and the community can kind of pressure the property development company to take into account the voices of Brent. Hmm. I have witnessed a change in the availability of public spaces. With hostile designs, it's something that's integrated in so slowly that I kind of don't really notice it until someone points it out, like the changing of benches so someone can't sleep there. Skate parks is something I've noticed. Most of them are either being turned into car parks or they're using them to create like new builds. I just wanted to go a bit further into actually like the loss of um, like public spaces and stuff like that. So who's that affecting? How is it affecting in a general kind of sense? Ultimately, the loss of public space affects the people who need it the most, which are the people who don't have access to a lot of the private spaces. So it might be fine if you have like a nice gym membership that gets you access to a good swimming pool and you have like a t private like tennis court membership and you might not notice that like there used to be a tennis court in your local park that now you have to pay to use. But ultimately, it's kind of the most vulnerable, I think, in our society who do suffer when those spaces disappear. Would you consider those most vulnerable people those who are not at a financial state of stability as opposed to like racially as well because I feel like it's a mix of both yeah totally it's kind of I guess like socially and economically deprived and that can like cross over into you know I think usually it's people of color usually it's women like it's usually people who experience oppression that get hit I think austerity hit women and people of color and the disabled worse than any other group and so those are the people really sadly that will have to kind of experience the loss of public space the hardest. Yeah. I was going to ask, in terms of people working, living, they can use public spaces, including young people. However, people that are homeless and people that are seen as barred in society, do they feel the losses of these public spaces as well? I mean, massively. If you think about, like, 
public loos, for example, if you're a homeless person, access to a public loo is like a huge part of your life probably. 100%. And the loss of that might be something that most people don't really notice. Mm -hmm. How many loos in London, for example, have turned into bars? Mm -hmm. You know, like it's kind of mad. And so even people, yeah, with kind of almost like very much on the fringes of society are still going to experience the loss of public space. And I think also it's about the way we kind of conceptualize it. So when we start to see public spaces around the city become privatized, we get into this mentality that it's kind of like certain people own it and you're not allowed to go there. And that mentality can kind of like, it can get into your brain and you start to feel that like there isn't this access for everyone and you're, no one's entitled to a space. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really horrible way of thinking, especially when there are people that really kind of need those spaces and areas. Touching on hostile architecture, Ruby, do you want to touch on that? Yeah, I guess it's kind of what it sounds like, which is when kind of property firms or architecture firms design spaces where basically homeless people can't sleep. So what you'll see is like a London bench or a bench anywhere that has a handlebar in the middle of it so you can't lie down. Or you might be walking past a business building and there's like a kind of space under the window where theoretically you could sit, but there's kind of spikes there to stop you lying there. That is just so cool. Yeah, I mean like, okay, so for example, uh, TFL bus stops have now removed loads of seats. Yeah, and they put the things you lean on yeah. because you can't sleep on those. So that would be an example of hostile, hostile design. But how can you be so like, that is just literally dehumanizing people. Like they're already in a situation of like reaching rock bottom and now you want to even push, push them, them further. Them. Like, yeah. Just, yeah, so it's, that's the same idea around hostile architecture. It doesn't just impact homeless people. It also would impact young people. So would either one of you guys want to explain how? Um, so I think one thing that came up was a lot of public spaces had the sign of like no no ball games, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the young people were very frustrated with that because, you know, part of their downtime was, you know, just kicking a ball, just relaxing. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they isolated them from doing so. Mm -hmm. That's like a major way in which hostile architecture does affect young people. Yeah, I definitely think it fuels people getting into unnecessary illegal activity. I think a lot of this stuff really starts from boredom because they haven't actually got anything to do because even in the spaces that are provided, they're blocked off. And so I kind of just wish that these areas just allowed people the space that is already there just to be used because I think it would definitely reduce issues with crime. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with both of you. I think it's not just about like the logistics of not having somewhere. It's what it says, you know? Like if you're going to disenfranchise a whole bunch of people from a community and say, you're not welcome here, you're not allowed to hang out here, we don't want you here, then not only are they literally not going to be able to spend time there, but they're going to be pissed off. And, you know, and that's not, that's not something you want to cultivate in a society, this kind of stratified you're not welcome here, you can't be in this space because we've sold it off or it's not for you. Yeah, I wonder like how you guys think, young people in particular, how can we use a public space? What is it used for? I think in particular, property developers <laughs> avoid trying to make public spaces for young people um, within my age group just because it's quite easy to just make a playground with swings, but it excludes people like within my age group. So like, I don't know, from like secondary school and onwards, um, they're quite afraid of the image that that plot of land is supposed to show and how it's supposed to represent the people that they're trying to attract. And therefore, by extension, they're sort of excluding sort of, you know, rowdiness almost. And, and also because they're quite diverse and, you know, one public space isn't going to provide to all their needs. Mm -hmm. 
Just going back on what you said, Jizra, about how property developers and just the people who are investing in plots of land tend not to make the area accessible to younger people. Do you think that's actually fueled by like racial kind of bias and assumptions about what people are going to be up to, um, especially in Brent as well, because we're quite culturally diverse? Do you think now with like the rise of gentrification and stuff like that, that's a kind of deliberate action to kind of eradicate any kind of access for the younger minority ethnic people in Brent or just in London in general? Yeah, I mean, if you consider, as I mentioned before, you know, the austerity cuts hit people of colour harder than white people. I mean, I would consider austerity and cuts to libraries, public uh, spaces, community centres as racist policy, personally. Um, I don't think, you know, that's the same as saying that everyone in the council or the kind of property developers are just thinking we don't care about those communities in our society because I think it's a very complex conversation around funding and how much councils have been had their funding cut since 2010. But ultimately, if you're putting through policy that's affecting people of colour worse than white people, then what is that if not by definition a racist policy? Yeah, agreed. Agreed. 100%. The signs like no ball games or loitering, I would definitely say it's targeting more like teenagers young kids. It's ball games, you know what I mean? It's football. Who doesn't want to play a bit of football when you're young? Skateboarders in particular, there's a sense that they damage the concrete or whatever it might be. I think overall no one really pays attention to them anyway, so it's almost like a waste of time. It's quite an ugly little sign to have. So young people in public spaces, if this is basically excluding them from the rest of society in terms of public spaces being restricted for them, things that they do, for example, hanging out, using speakers on the parks and playing games and stuff, what is to say that that's different from what other people do in in parks and public spaces and why they are being restricted and why other people aren't being restricted? Oh, yeah, completely. There's, I mean, there's probably a total condescension to... And, and let's be real, like, I think when councils are saying, like, oh, there's a bunch of young people in the park playing speakers, they're saying there's a bunch of black young people, basically. 100%. Like, I feel like that's what that means. Um, so it's like a kind of racialized comment, firstly. And, yeah, I mean, if you if you take, for example, Brent, which I also park grew up in near Kensal Rise, um, you know, the loss of Kensal Rise Library was a really big issue while I was growing up. And I think they've now finally managed to raise enough funds to reopen it. I'm not saying that, like, every single young person in a park who's, like, I don't know, bored and being annoying is going to go spend their time in a library if they have that option. (laughs) But, like, you can't underestimate how useful it is to have a space like that to, like, study, to, like, hang out, to, like, read. Um, And and those are the things that are being cut. So you are going to have the kind of repercussions of people being displaced. It's helped me a lot in terms of public spaces being available and accessible because in times that I've, say, like, I haven't got a clear mind or anything like that, or there's a lot of stuff in my mind, I'll go to, say, a park or somewhere that's open, somewhere I can look at the sky and stuff and just think and meditate. Whereas people being seen using the public spaces for a bad reason kind of conflicts that. But at the same time, there are people that go to public spaces that are young and use it for the right reasons. Um, I agree with you, Nerdian, but I was also going to just touch on the fact that because you do like music as well, creativity, like you need the space to do it. Do you feel like the cuts to your amount of access that you have has impacted you yeah. creatively as well? I feel like it has because being in a room with four walls and being confined into that space, you don't really allow yourself to venture out. Being in an open space and thinking, me personally, I, think, I don't know if that sounds weird, but me personally, that's what I do. I like 
like to be in a big open space where there's a lot of, I'm saying free. There's a lot of things that are just free. So do you feel like on behalf of like other creators as well, that they would benefit from just more space? So public space, outdoor space, with more like freedom to be there as opposed to like feeling restricted, feeling as though they don't belong in that area? 100%. It will benefit everyone in terms of everything because like space is a necessity. So I happen to be in a public place playing piano in Tottenham Court Road. That's a free public piano that has been put there by, I think, a couple musicians. They get to sign a piano off. And, and I think that was Tokyo Myers piano there in Tottenham Court Road. So I was discovered on Twitter playing piano at a public space, which sparked like a whole journey for me, basically going through TV interviews to having Coldplay buy me a piano themselves. No way. In my, yeah, I've got a piano in my room yeah, that's mad. from Coldplay. And it's the exact same piano that's in that video. So that journey itself, I feel like that public space benefited me from because it wouldn't have happened if I didn't have that public piano to play on. That's so much more important. When you, when you put it like that, yeah. you think, oh my gosh, public space really does actually allow an opportunity for like people to branch to, out in their careers. Blow. and yeah, To blow, exactly. That's crazy. Considering like the political climate that we're in right now, do you feel as though that's ever really going to change now, considering where we're at? Yeah, I think it will change when we get a Labour government. But <laughs> considering the election in December, you know, um, that's not going to happen for the next five years. And that's really upsetting and that's really hard to deal with. The continual privatisation of space has gotten significantly worse under the Conservatives since 2010. Um, they are not a party that believes in injecting in public spending. And so I highly doubt that we're going to see a massive change. Um, there might be a small glimmer of hope for maybe some northern communities in this kind of very superficial payback that the Conservatives might want to do to say thank you for, like, voting for them. But I think that will be very, very minor mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of things. Minuscule. <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah. totally minuscule. So you were just going back to Seen and Heard. Um, so what was like the outcomes of the project? How was it received? What was the reception like? And what were the kind of goals that you guys are pushing forward to do? In our last session, we went to LSE and we presented what we had come up with so far. So our group um, ideas of different public spaces. Um, and also like a sort of loose youth charter almost, in which we felt that something that should be distributed between all property developers, um, which that they should adhere to, to ensure that young people aren't excluded. Mm. I think the reception was quite good because we opened their eyes and they hadn't really sort of taken this angle. Mm. Um, I think one positive outcome of that was that they gave us extra land. So they said that there was a like a building and they said that we could have that as well and then we could, you know, um, take the steps to sort of mold that into our own as well, which was quite good. So yeah, I think that was really good. Mm. So on a whole, is it looking bleak for young people in terms of their access to public spaces or is the future going to be hopeful? You know what? It looks bad in terms of like our current government and that's really depressing. But when I think about young people and like the movements they've been part of, True. Um, especially like before the kind of December election, you know, that really gives me hope. And I do think we've got like the most politically engaged generation that there has ever been. Oh, 100%. Yeah, especially mm -hmm. when you collect the Fridays for Future stuff. And so, I mean, like, I don't have any stats to back this up, but this is totally my presumption, just kind of seeing young people mobilize in a way that I've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me hopeful because I do think there is a whole generation of people who will not stand up for the same kind of shit that people have gone through before. 
Yeah, I agree. I feel like, especially over social media, you do see people around our age group who are just so much more socially and politically conscious. Like, we just were not awake before that. I think it's just so nice. It's refreshing. We woke up. We woke yeah. up. Yeah. I think it is refreshing to see the engagement from people our age and just stuff like this because, like, we kind of deem it as more like, oh, these are more adult issues and stuff. But it really is going to affect us. Even though it didn't reflect in the election result, I did, as you say, Amelia, see, like, a huge uproar in young people mm -hmm. so yeah it, I feel like it's looking good for yeah, us yeah it gives me hope is, yeah. yeah you have to hold on to that at times like this you know <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really important to kind of get involved in like local community groups and pressure groups mm -hmm. so you know like Save Kensal Rise Library was a big organisation <laughs> there's loads of organisations to like save other community spaces in Brent and we are in a society that makes us think that we're all on our own like we can't really do much but you'd be amazed historically how much coming together as like a collective has like made differences. We can like pressure governments and pressure organizations. And you know, if people are protesting a bunch of new bills that are projected in, in Brent, then, you know, that's going to be harder for the property developers. You know, most projects that are going to be built go through planning permission. The, the council might agree to sell off a bit of land to a property development firm, but then it'll go through planning permission. And what that means is they'll do like a consultation about whether it should go through. And so like looking into those things, which is kind of difficult and made very hard to access. Um, but yeah, just being aware of your space and knowing that you're like entitled to it, you know, and not to just accept the state of society as it is, which is everything is private and and you don't deserve any space. Right. So togetherness can make a difference. Yeah, man. Sweet. I've really learned a lot today. Yeah, me too. Thank you guys so much. That was so insightful. Got me heated. You're very welcome. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> a little no bit heated, but... <laughs> yeah. So, Amelia, how do you feel after that? Ugh, it was just... That was heavy. It just got me really thinking about the way that the government is set up against people of a minority ethnic and people who aren't as affluent. And it just really aggravates me. And they yeah. think they're being subtle and slick with it, but they're really not. And actually what they're doing is they're affecting such a large and broad that variety of people in society, even down to homeless people. They can't even be homeless. People don't even know that. Why your local park is being closed off or... Yeah. For me, that one, that one kind of rocked me. You know, it's like you can host your events where people are effectively polluting and ruining nature and the area that people live in, but we can't kick ball. Us kicking ball, what does that give them? Does that yeah. give them money? Yeah, it's like, true. They don't put coin in their pocket. They just want to profit. Lovebox, wireless, all of these huge, huge festivals. Imagine how much money they're making off tickets, yeah, off, off performances. Exactly. Thank you, Ruby. And thank you, Yusra, for coming and speaking to us about public spaces. Vent is a collaboration between Vice and Brent London Borough of Culture 2020. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.